Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. There are a few areas of the economy the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't adversely affected, and the wedding sector is no different. The weddings industry is worth an average of $14.7 billion to the UK economy each year, yet businesses within this sector, across all parts of the supply chain, are on the brink of collapse. This is despite pent-up demand and record bookings for the year ahead, as many have been unable to benefit from the various financial support packages announced by the Treasury over the past year or so. Today, we are joined by CLA member Emily McVeigh of the Kenton Hall Estate in Suffolk to hear how the pandemic has affected her weddings business, and Dr Charles Trotman, Senior Rural Business and Economics Advisor at the CLA, to give us an insight into the scale of the problem and hear what is needed to help these businesses businesses survive both now and into the future. Well, welcome, Emily, and welcome, Charles. Great to have you on the CLA podcast. Uh, Emily, if I can just turn to you first, tell us about the McVeigh family and a bit of the background to the Kenton Hall Estate. Yes, well, hello. So um, we have been farming in Suffolk um, for the past 35 years. I think my parents bought um, Kenton Hall. And um, before that, we're actually, um, we're 12th generation, my generation, me and my siblings farming um, um, from Northern Ireland originally. So really long um, farming history and heritage. And um, we have a mixed um, arable and livestock farm. We have a herd of English longhorn cattle um, and a, a small, a smallish farm um, estate in Suffolk. And um, about, we're getting on to 10 years ago now. Um, I was 21. I moved back home to Suffolk and I really wanted to sort of create a job for myself. And um I had little experience in weddings, but um, I really saw potential at Kenton to uh, create a wedding venue. And that came first. And then um, I also added a glamping site, which provided accommodation for the weddings. And that's grown into a site that now accommodates 20 guests. And we do lots of um, stays and hen parties there too. And then uh, in 2014, I added a cookery school. So a true farm diversification, uh, running three enterprises. And uh, my sister heads up the herd of English Hong Kong cattle and um, we sell that um, directly uh, to the customer and also through a website called Gruto and a couple of local butchers. So um, yes, that's sort of in a nutshell, uh, Kenton Hall and the McBay family. There's quite a bit going on there to keep you busy, no doubt. Is that part of the philosophy of the estate that you are alongside the core farming operation? You've, you've got these diversification businesses uh, and the complementary businesses as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm one of four, four children. I'm number two and um, my younger sister, Lucy, number three, and my brother, um, Thomas, who's the youngest. So we all um, work on the farm. Tom did a degree in agriculture. Um, he's been traveling and, and done various things. And he's now coming back to the farm and looking at ways he can take on um, the farming side of the business and move that forward. But yeah, it's very integral to have the um, you know, the farm still um, making money and making um contribution and then the weddings and the glamping all kind of coexisting and working together and you know it does all link it sounds quite funny because we do weddings glamping cookery school um beef but it does all um it does all work together for those who come to visit because it adds more of an experience i think people really like the story behind it my auntie and uncle live on the farm as well my grandmother lived on the farm um and it's very much a kind of family um family estate a family place and i think we echo that to anyone that visits they come and have a real kind of intimate family experience and hopefully um hopefully enjoy that Mm. And also, but by having a number of different enterprises, it spreads the risk because I've spoken to a lot of farmers uh, recently who uh, alongside the farm, they might have um, holiday cottages and they normally say it's the tourism, it's the diversification projects that prop up the farm. But this year it's been the farm that's been propping up the other aspects of the business. So so it's useful to have a spread of enterprises uh, within the estate. Um, but, but tell us a bit more now about the weddings business. How many w- would you have within a year? Yeah, so we're we're relatively small venue. We just opened during the summer, so we open May uh, three to September. And um, from a planning permission point of view, we we do a maximum of eight. But when um, that was imposed, when we opened the venue, and we really have worked that into our strengths, so we offer exclusive use for the weekend. They have as much time as they need during the week before to set up, and they have it very much to themselves over the whole weekend and use the glamping site um, and you know other parts of the farm as well. So um, we usually have about eight. Um, this year, 2021, we had uh, up to 12 booked um, with those obviously moving over from last year. So even though we're a small, a small venue, we also then have lots of hen parties. So really, for me, the whole summer is is completely taken up by hen parties and weddings and um, and then midweek stays in the glamping site and some group stays at some weekends that we have available. But obviously, both the hen parties and the weddings are within the wedding industry. So um, both have been heavily affected for me, um, both last year and uh, unfortunately looking into this summer too. Yeah. And, and tell us a bit more about that. What's the extent of the impact COVID has had on that business? Yeah. So, I mean, last summer, um, last March, when it all kind of kicked off, um, lots of bride and grooms or all luckily for me, actually, everybody said, right, yeah, great, we'll move to 2021. 2020, we want our big wedding celebration at Kenton. We love Kenton. We still want to have it there. So I was very sort of lucky in a way because I moved everyone over to 2021 and um, managed to move all their bookings. And I didn't have many cancellations. And because I'm a summer venue, it seemed to work you know, relatively well. Um, and then my fiance has um, has a pub restaurant in Brandiston and um, we set up a little, little village shop there and he's been baking. So I kind of moved over and helped out there. Um, so personally, I sort of got through the summer. Um, glamping was obviously closed and, you know, we thought, OK, fine, move it all to 2021. And, you know, I'll come out of this relatively unscathed because I didn't have all the costs of setting up the marquee and opening the venue for the summer. We sort of closed it all down, battened down the hatches and, you know, thought, fine, 2021. Well, obviously, as things have prog- progressed, it has become clear that uh, the summer of 2021 will not be 
as we expected last year. And that's now having a quite significant effect on um, cash flow, on staffing, on how we're going to move forward as a business, because with the uncertainty that's around, you can sort of just about, I can sort of just about cope with one summer of no income um, and closing the venue, like I said. Um, and, you know, I'm lucky compared to a lot of other rural wedding venues that have a lot of fixed costs and a lot of, um, you know, other 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 problems and items that they need to deal with. But now the real problem is looking ahead to 2021 and to 2022 and seeing how we can survive another summer. Um, and I think it's mainly the uncertainty because when you're planning a wedding, you know, most people need a year, two years to plan ahead. As a business, we're working from a cash flow point of view a year, two years ahead. Um, and with the uncertainty, it's it's now causing severe problems. Uh, how are you dealing with your customers, the, the, the bride and groom and their families? They obviously, they're keen to, to, to book your venue. They're keen to make arrangements, but it's really tricky for you to balance those conversations, maintain that relationship, but, but being very difficult to commit to, to certain dates given the uncertainties that still exist. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, completely. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of couples think I have a kind of uh, direct line to number 10 and think that I have some more information than they have. So um, <laughs> there is no more information, you know, that we know inside the industry than anybody else. So it, that's, you know, that has its challenges because, you know, we, we watch the news, we understand what's happening at the same time as everybody else. I think honesty is, you know, the, the most important thing and saying, look, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen. It's a balance because we don't want our couples to sort of jump ship and think right you know we need to move to 2022 straight away so it's been it's been a challenge to kind of manage the conversation so we're open and honest and we speak to them early and we reassure them but also and from a business point of view we obviously want to maintain the business if we possibly can and obviously when it comes to weddings there's a lot of emotion so and also there's a lot of uh, financial you know consequences as well so a lot of couples maybe started planning 2018 2019 for their 2020 2021 wedding they have a plan of how they're going to pay for that wedding um savings parents help and situations for people have changed you know jobs the job situations have changed and maybe what they thought their budget would be for their wedding has changed so um is managing how they will cope with that and their expectations and you know their dreams lots of brides have dreamed about a big wedding from you know from when they're a, a little girl so yes it's 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 just managing all these expectations and emotions that add to the kind of to the business side of it when you're trying to look at your terms and conditions and your cancellation policies and then the advice from the CMA and how you're going to you know, kind of navigate your way through that. Um, but I have had a really open dialogue with all of um, all of my brides and grooms, and so far so good. You know, I think um, I think it's really important to uh, pick up and speak to them on the phone as well as email because email can come across quite um, quite cold and quite difficult at this time. Of course, it is a special occasion for them and it's a huge importance. And I'm sure, Charles, this is a familiar story you're hearing throughout the UK, various wedding venues having to deal with these really challenging times and pressure points from all directions, pressures from a financial point of view, pressures from a customer relationship point of view. Uh, sum up to us, you know, in terms of the industry, what is the feeling out there within the wedding 
things business at the moment? Well, I think we've got to we've got to a situation where because the situation has been so uncertain for so long, and it comes back to Emily's point that weddings take a lot of planning. You're talking one, two years uh, beforehand. That without uh, a clear guideline or a clear plan of action uh, for for the wedding sector, then a lot of businesses will face severe financial pressure. And I think it's also important to stress that when we talk about the wedding sector, we're talking about a sector which is unique because of its very fragmented supply chain. If you you know you look at weddings, you're talking about who makes the cakes, the invitations, the receptions, and so on and so forth. And they're all these businesses as part of the supply chain are all individual businesses and they're run to actually make a living. And what we found is because the government uh, over, the, over the last few months has gradually cut the numbers when a wedding can actually take place from 30 to 15 and now only in exceptional circumstances can a wedding take place. It means that there's no longer the economic capacity there for a business to actually you know, make, make an event viable. And that's one of the biggest problems that we've got. As Emily said, th- these businesses still have to pay costs. They've got overheads to meet. And it means that the impact on a very uh, vibrant, uh, thriving sector, certainly in 2019, and you mentioned at the start, it's worth about £14.7 billion to the economy. The impact on that sector has been absolutely huge. And what we're seriously concerned about is the longer term impact. Emily mentioned about this year, about next year, and 2023. We don't see uh, any uh, easy way out of this, I'm afraid. And it's going to be a case that the industry and government needs to work together to put together a clear and targeted financial package to provide support now and in the short and medium term. Because what we don't want to see is a vibrant, thriving sector just fall apart because of a lack of government understanding of the sector requirements themselves. And I, th- I think it's right that you make the point, Charles, that, that the weddings industry is 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 enormous in in the fact that there's so many other businesses that that depend on weddings for their livelihoods. Uh, you know, looking at flowers and catering and and, and wedding dresses and, and and the list goes on. So it's it's, it's quite substantial. And and there may be listeners uh, who's listening to who are listening to this podcast who might not be that familiar with the weddings industry. Can you provide some headline statistics as to the economic contribution? We mentioned it at the beginning and and, and again. Just to, for us to gain a better understanding of the scale and urgency of the problem. Well, in 2019, there were around 280,000 weddings in the UK, in the country. Um, as I said uh, earlier, it's worth about £14.7 billion to the UK economy. So clearly, it's not a small sector. But the losses are estimated for 2020, for last year, to be well over £6 billion. And we estimate because... We know we're not able to hold weddings at the moment, and it's likely we're not going to be able to hold weddings until June or July uh, this year, that those pressures and those costs will, will mount up. And it's not just on you know business owners. It's not just on Emily and others. It's actually on their employees as well. And the sector, uh, certainly in 2019, employs over 400,000 people. That is significant, and that is what is being put at risk. 
do you think some venues will, will not return when when the restrictions allow? Finally, do you think some businesses will decide that the, you know that they either gone out of business or they decide that, that their time is up? I think we've got to, we've already got to a situation where a number of businesses in the supply chain have already said, right, enough's enough. I can't take any more. I think we've got to realise that these are small businesses, although micro businesses, they're not large corporate entities. Um, and I think it's it's going to be a case that you need to look at the scale of this. In order for a wedding to be profitable and viable, you need at least 50 guests there. We're not at those figures yet, and we haven't been at those figures for the last 12 months. Now, until the government realises that, then that pressure will continue. And if we are looking at a situation where weddings won't be able to uh, be put on, until June or July, which is the indications that we're getting at the moment, then smaller businesses will begin to really feel the pressure and will, you know, they'll cease trading. And I think it's it's as simple as that. There will be a number of businesses that will go out of business because they, they don't see a future anymore. And it will take time uh, to have any element of recovery. What about the government support? We've heard various packages of support being announced, but those haven't particularly been of great benefit to the weddings industry. No, because it's not targeted. And I think this is where the government's got it wrong. And it's what I said a little earlier. There's, there seems to be a lack of understanding within government circles as to how the wedding sector actually operates. To give, you know, to give you um, a kind of case study, what would normally happen in, in this area, you'd have uh, a particular government department being responsible, and we would normally assume that to be uh, the, the Department for uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, because that's responsible for tourism, it's responsible for hospitality. It isn't. It's partly responsible. The other government department is Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Bays, and it's the small business minister who's responsible uh, for policies that affect the wedding sector. There's no coherence here. There's no clear coordination. And that stems from the fact that the government hasn't recognised what, one, firstly, I'd say, how the wedding industry itself is made up, you know, how many, you know, how fragmented the supply chain is and how many small businesses are involved. And the government's support isn't actually targeted towards those kind of businesses. Um, what we found doing a little research on this is that a number of uh, those businesses involved in the wedding sector are not eligible for the self-employed grant scheme. Now that's an oversight on the part of the government. If we can't get the, if we can't get the scales right to make sure that a future or future events are viable and profitable, then all we're doing is we're adding pressure onto an already fraught situation. It's clear that the government needs to put forward targeted support and it needs a, a proper package. We've, we've had this, we've had examples in the past. We've had uh, tailored packages, tailored support packages for the dairy sector, for example, which is far smaller than a wedding sector and doesn't contribute anywhere near as much to the UK economy. So what we've said to government uh, is they need to Reevaluate. Re they need to. They need to look at this again and actually put together a proper support package so that these small businesses don't find themselves on the verge of of quitting the industry. Emily, if I come back to you, there, do you agree with what Charles is saying that there's been a distinct lack of targeted support for the weddings industry? Yes, absolutely. And um, 
I've definitely signed a petition which uh, has gone to Parliament for a Minister of Hospitality because we really need somebody to represent us uh, to the government, in within the government, for our sector because, as Charles said, it is a unique sector. You have florists... Um, you know, hair, hair and makeup and individuals, but who also, you know, have a small part of their business, which is for non-wedding trade, but the majority is for weddings. And um, I think it's just so important for us to have representation and for the government to really understand how we work, because they just don't seem to grasp the planning side of things, cash flow, how these businesses are working. And I know it's incredibly difficult for them to give us a roadmap and to, you know, for all of us to have a crystal ball and see what's going to happen in the future. But there doesn't seem to be any commitment to these businesses and to the sector to getting the, you know, getting us up and running and looking at how weddings, as Charles said, for over 50 people can be reintroduced and reopened because that is unfortunately when it becomes viable for, for our businesses to, um, to host weddings. I mean, there's, there's the argument that, you know, were weddings getting too big and elaborate, but ultimately people want to have a really lovely party and celebrate with their family and friends. And um, I was supposed to be getting married myself in October last year. And I do understand it's very difficult when they suddenly, the government suddenly woman, it says you can only have six people and that includes the minister. So therefore you can't have both sets of your parents present. So you have to choose your favourite three parents <laughs> to be uh, included in your wedding. And I think they just can't seem to grasp um, what it, what the wedding industry needs and how we can reopen in a safe matter, in a safe way, if that is, you know, including vaccines or rapid testing. But how can we get the sector opening up? Um, to, we're not asking for 200 people within an inside wedding venue, you know, tomorrow. We're asking for a roadmap of how we can reopen with a good amount of people with, you know, 50 and over to make these weddings viable for the industry. Plus, to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The Country Land and Business Association have been safeguarding the interests of landowners and rural businesses since 1907. We lobby government continually on behalf of our members to give them the security and certainty to invest in their land and business. Our in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and rural business management to ensure the positive development of the rural economy. What 
what would a proper support package look like? Is it all financial support or is there some non-financial support you'd, you'd also welcome? I think Emily's absolutely spot on in the sense that the sector needs certainty. It needs the government to set out the roadmap. Now, as part of that roadmap, it needs to set out what the conditions would be for uh, an event to actually take place, what the safety conditions would be. Now, we've already had this experience in the tourism sector when tourism venues were able to reopen in July last year. So we've got uh, examples of how to actually do this in the future. Right now, what the government needs to do is actually provide targeted financial support because they need to be able to underpin those businesses which are part uh, of the sector itself and as you know as i said before if they don't those businesses a lot of those businesses will actually fail uh, to survive uh, covid and you know the post lockdown era when we might have an opportunity of being able to recover and get back to some semblance um, of normality but it's I think it's a combination of both government action, government financial support, government action and government direction in terms of the roadmap, but the industry itself. And I think the industry has a vital part to play in this because, as I said, our view is the government doesn't understand the sector. Well, if it doesn't understand the sector, let the industry take the lead on this. Let the industry set out what the conditions should be as to what a safe wedding would look like. You know, Emily mentioned about um, rapid testing. We, we've seen this in other sectors. It is possible. So why not extend the logic to the wedding sector? Why not have weddings outdoors? We know that there is legislation which prevents uh, a large wedding taking place outdoors. That needs to be amended. It needs to be changed because without that flexibility, the industry will not be able to certainly survive the way it did uh, pre COVID. So it's a combination, government financial support, and let the industry set out what it thinks it needs to do. Is that supported by the UK Weddings Task Force? I know this task force has been established. What exactly are they asking for? Is the CLA involved with that? Well, it's asking for exactly what I've just set out. It's asking for clear financial support. But, and this is why we're involved in this, because we can actually bring our experience you know, we've, the, the mistakes that were made, the lessons learned from what happened after the first lockdown in July 2020. Now, we know that a number of uh, rural tourism businesses thought they were able to reopen safely. With the sheer volume of numbers uh, coming on holiday last year to certain areas, they weren't able to cope. Now, we can actually give that experience and provide support and guidance, not only to our own uh, wedding venue members and uh, those members who have businesses associated with the wedding sector, we can actually pr um, provide clear guidance to those in the wedding sector itself. And I think one of the other important issues that we've, we've seen and one of the advantages that we've got because of our links uh, in terms of our relationship with government is that we can actually help the weddings task force deal with an area of public policy which they know nothing about and it comes back to emily i think emily made this made this point right at the beginning a lot of those who are involved in the, in the in the weddings industry those involved in the weddings task force have never come across uh, this situation before 
primarily because they've, they've never needed to. They never had to delve into the politics, the policy, the intrigue, uh, which is taking place or has and has been taking place since March last year. Is for organisations and trade associations such as the CLA because we've got the experience of dealing with with this on a day in day out basis, and you know this is why Emily is a member, is that we can provide that experience. We can actually pr- uh, provide and disseminate the information that we receive direct from government for our members, and we can also do that for external organisations and bodies such as the Weddings Task Force. So. Let me put it like this. It's a marriage made in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) What would your response be to that, Emily? Yeah, I would agree completely. Um, I think that the CLA is is a fantastic um, resource for us um, to be able to get advice and support. It's it's very unclear, especially sort of from a legal point of view, um, with refunds and terms and conditions and insurance and how we're going to navigate moving forward with such high risk of cancellation. moving forward so i think the cla have a have a very important part to play and also like we said with the task force i think that they they are asking to be recognized as well and to and for you know this minister of hospitality and to to move forward and to have some um some say in how we move forwards like charles said you know the wedding industry should lead this because they understand how a wedding is planned what the couples, what our clients want and need in terms of reassurance and how they can move forwards and, and ultimately have a really successful um, day themselves. So I think um, I think it's really important that the task force is recognised and supported like uh, by the CLA and um, and yeah, how, you know, kind of help um, get the government to to see to recognise and see how we can move forwards. And I suppose you're also keen to, as you mentioned quite a few times, about getting certainty again, that roadmap. But also once once the things start moving and, and weddings are able to, to be held within a reasonable numbers, you're going to want to know the guidelines. What are going to be the, 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 the uh, expectations on venues in terms of social distancing, in terms of, of, of hygiene and, and, and mitigating the risks of, of spread? You're going to want to know exactly what you need to put in place to make it um, to, to make it c- compliant with with the expectations, and there's quite a lot to get your head around. In addition to to, to, to putting on a venue, uh, putting on a wedding, which in itself is is a big is a big task. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we really need to know as soon as possible, as early as possible, um, what the guidelines are going to be, because then we can obviously put them in place. Obviously, every wedding venue is different. We have lots of different. Um, venues rurally especially we have barn based marquee um you know lots of different types of venues and some logistically you know within older buildings it will be logistically very difficult to put into place um some of these guidelines others will be more adaptable so i think that it's it's key that we can know early so we can plan ahead and obviously for us the wedding industry may to september is our harvest it is the time that people want to get married they want to have a big party and it's it's the time that we ultimately you know make all of our money and that obviously weddings do happen you know october through to may but not as many and um for us we do need information as soon as possible so we can look at this summer and you know ultimately plan ahead to next summer as well so we can get um, get things in into place and get ready. Uh, there is some legislation coming through about reforming the laws about weddings and how and where you can get married, which I think is really important um, 
that that is looked at with some urgency. Getting married outside is not legal in England, and uh, I offer woodland blessing uh, woodland blessings in our lovely space outside. It's not licensed because. The, the charm of it is being in the middle of wood, the woodland with the trees and the sunshine coming through and uh, that kind of really natural space. And to, to have that license, I have looked into it um, in the past, you would need a structure, a permanent structure, which you'd obviously need planning permission for. And it would obviously, uh, and it would also sort of ruin the whole ambience of the space. And um, personally, having kind of, you know, been through this myself recently the laws around licensing for weddings is totally archaic even within the church of england but also um within the government um you know registry civil ceremony um licensing and there needs to be much more flexibility because then we could have number you know weddings of 50 or above outside there's no uh, reason why even coming into this summer we couldn't enable an outdoor wedding from the start to finish, obviously the British weather is more challenging than abroad, for example, but that would be a really good place to start. So the government really looking at that legislation and getting it more flexible um, so the laws can be adapted and we can then react as businesses and ultimately weddings could go ahead sooner outdoors. Charles, is that something you picked up with your government liaison as well in terms of looking at the broader picture? It's not only the COVID, but there's other fundamental things that need to, to be revised as well going forward. I think Emily's Emily's uh, quite right. I think what the government needs to do is, is revise the legislation, amend the legislation as quickly as possible. The very fact that uh, weddings outside aren't licensed and can't therefore take place is anathema to modern society. And I think it's also... Uh, the case that there are three things in life, death, taxes, and people get married. And I think there's got to be a recognition that if we're going to continue along the path that we are at the moment with the same rules which are in place, we're not going to be able to get back to where we want to be in the future. There has to be change. We have an opportunity of changing it. We have an opportunity of changing, as Emily said, the archaic rules that currently exist. Society has moved on. Um, it just feels as if the government hasn't accepted that point yet. And um, what do you think is the outlook for the industry, Charles, if, if there is no government support forthcoming? I know this is something you're stressing time and time again, and Emily's as well, but what do you think is going to be the impact of that? Going into the second year now, potentially of severe restrictions, what's the outlook? Well, I think you've got to look at it from the view that there is only so much that you know those businesses within the wedding supply chain can actually take. As I've already said, many are already close uh, to the brink of of ceasing to trade. Some have already gone, you could say, over the cliff. But it doesn't have to be that way. If again, as I said, the government recognises and understands the importance of the sector and the various intricacies which are involved. You know, it is with a, a great deal of regret and a great deal of, of disappointment that this hasn't happened. And that's where that's where we are now. That's the current situation we're in. Now, wedding businesses, from what we've seen, are resilient. And it's been shown on a number of occasions. They've been hit in all sorts of different ways. Emily's point about uh, refunds and the position uh, from the Competition and Markets Authority. Again, that's a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of how the law works. But there has to be 
consistency, and we haven't seen that. But for many, the, you know, the reopening of the economy is going to be is likely to be too little, and it will be too late. What needs to happen is we need to put in place a kind of framework whereby the sector can be seen to uh, engage. It can be seen to uh, go forward, make progress, and actually begin the process of recovery. It's, you could say it's we're now in a position that we need to reset, we need to begin that recovery, and we need to actually move forward for the future. Uh, and and Emily, do, do you agree with that? We, with with a recovery now, this is we need to focus on the future. And despite the the challenging times, adversity, and everything, they sometimes it can prompt new ideas. Do, do you see any opportunities being born out of the pandemic? And if so, what what might those be? I think you're right. I think that um, you know it has been happening. You know, COVID has been with us for uh, nearly a year now. And I agree with Charles. I think it's just sad that we've got to the stage that we haven't uh, found a better sort of solution and way to look forward and way to plan. Um, Personally, I do struggle uh, with the planning side of things. I'm a real planner. My diary has planned a year, two years ahead. Um, It's the way I have to work. And I think that... um, you know, I've struggled with that. And I think lots of other people have. I think when it comes to opportunities, I think that for me on the farm, um, I had lots of plans for 2022. I had plans to develop the glamping site, add new areas, add new items. I had plans for an outdoor kitchen at the cookery school. And I've had to really take stock and use 2021 as, sorry, I had plans for 2021. So I had to, to, I've had to take stock and think, actually, this is a recovery year. This is the year that I just need to batten down the hatches, recover, see what I can get done and not make any big plans in, you know, with the uncertainty. And now I'm looking ahead to 2022. And I think that we need the certainty to be able to make these plans. There are opportunities, um, and ways that you can you you know diversify and look look for new markets, but that does take time. And um, I said a bit earlier, my fiance has a, a, a pub restaurant, and we opened a shop, and it's been incredibly successful. And he's been baking, and he now works all night as a baker, which is <laughs> interesting. But we've diversified there, and we're now at the point of looking at to put in a bakery kitchen there. And I think likewise, wedding venues can do that. But it just needs the certainty of how we can move forward and to be able to plan because I'm a big planner. I love new ideas. Um, uh, sort of would describe myself as an entrepreneur in that respect. Is that I'm I would love sort of looking at. Um, I, I've I've been awarded the Nuffield Scholarship and um, I think part of me is just very nosy and I love seeing what other people are doing and what's going to be the next big thing and trends and um, I love the excitement of that and I think that. Um, for that to flourish and for rural businesses to survive and thrive, they need certainty to be able to plan because even though there are uh, different uh, you know, aspects and ideas that I'm sure most of these venues could look at and adapt to, I think that we're all in the sector just feeling a bit unsure and you know, kind of lack of um, inspiration, I guess. I know that sounds a bit negative, but I think unfortunately that's where we are at the moment. Uh, what, would you, what would you say are the the most promising trends that, that, that might emerge in the next five to ten years? Do, do you think you know this COVID is clearly a, a massive watershed moment? Uh, do, do you think that um, things will be very different when weddings come back? Do you think some of the celebrations might be even bigger than than what they were previously? I think they will be different. I think they I think the micro wedding actually 
some people, my sister got married in September um, when we were allowed 30 guests. And obviously it had not been the wedding that she'd planned. She was planning on getting married in July um, and she will have a celebration at some point in the future. We're not exactly sure when, but it was a really intimate, lovely event and it was almost more special um, because it was smaller. So, you know, micro weddings might persevere, but I think that what people really want is that celebration. I suppose people are missing at the moment is that, you know, is that kind of time to relax, enjoy, have a dance, spend time with your friends. And I think, yeah, celebrations might get bigger. I think the kind of love wins trend might, um, we might see more of, you know, people actually thinking this is going to be my day. And, and maybe one positive might, people might not be so hung up on the kind of the decorations and exactly how it's going to look and it being the absolute perfect day. I think that ultimately the values that will come out of it are people just wanting to have a really fantastic time with their family and friends and their, their loved ones and just really, you know, um, treasure and, um, and, you know, have, make some lovely memories for the future. Focus on the important things. And, but it'll be interesting how the industry uh, copes with all the pent-up demands. Do, do you think there's going to be a huge rush and there'll be a lot of midweek weddings uh, alongside weekend weddings just to try and catch up with the backlog, essentially? Yeah, I think so, because I think there has been, I mean, I'm already inundated with um inquiries for 2022 and you know even for smaller events for 2021 you know we'll have to see what can happen with those I think there is a big demand because you know people have still got engaged people are still reaching that time in their lives when they want to get married and so you know I have weddings still postponed who started planning in 2018 I then have weddings that started planning last year during the pandemic looking to 2021 so yes I mean I think there's going to be a big demand and I think um, it's going to be difficult for the sector to react to that because I'm cautious of taking new bookings to 22 if I have to move all of the 21 weddings because obviously they have priority and they, you know, they've been waiting for a long time. So it's really challenging because, um, yes, we have the demand there, but it's how to fulfil that demand whilst keeping our previous um, couples happy. And obviously from a cash flow point of view, you know, we're just kicking it down the line and, you know, I'm not charging more for 2020. I'm not charging for moving because I don't think that's right, but it's very hard to quantify that and to kind of make that work from a business point of view. But then as a person and someone myself that's getting married, you know, it's the kind of tug of war of how to, how to survive and how to, um, you know, best serve our customers as well. It's a delicate juggling act uh, and I don't envy you, your, your position at all. But, but Charles, what's your advice to, to, to people like Emily and, and others within the industry? What, what can they do now to try and make the best of, of the situation that we're in? I think we're, we're, what we've seen throughout the uh, pandemic is that businesses have had to adapt and those in the wedding sector are no different. Um, and as I said before, it's a case of having to reset and be ready to recover. Um, what's also interesting is that wedding businesses, whether they're small businesses, micro businesses or whatever, they need to be flexible. They need to uh, be able to use the skills that they have in other areas if they possibly can. Essentially, they need to be able to transfer their business skills and 
they need to be able to use the support which is available. Hopefully, there will be more support uh, which will become available from the government. But but crucially, they need to revisit their business plans. And it comes back to this point that Emily uh, was mentioning just now. What is likely to happen in 21, 22 and 2023 is that businesses will, wedding businesses will become logistical experts because they'll need to actually timetable and program in, uh, you know, what's happened in the past, the postponements which have taken place, the need to generate additional revenue um, and look at, essentially look outside the box. I think these businesses need to look outside the comfort zone which they've had uh, pre-COVID. Uh, I think where necessary, they also need to look at the areas of potential collaboration in order to try and keep their costs down. And one of the biggest problems that we've seen is that because there's, there's no income coming in, costs have, have actually uh, spiralled in certain areas, and that's put additional pressure on small businesses as well. I think finally, they need to be aware of what advice and what information is available. Um, the information is there. It's not necessarily that easy to find. And this is why uh, organizations such as CLA are important for, for their members, is that we've got access to that inf information. We can tailor that information in terms of the advice that we give. And we can actually put forward to the government the needs and uh, you know, the lobbying points from the industry itself if so that government can actually understand what the sector is, how it performs, or rather how it's performed in the past and how it will perform in the future. So we do get to a position where we do have a clear sense of recovery, but that is obviously preconditioned on the fact that the sector itself needs clear certainty from government as to what's going to happen in the next few months. And that is the core message, isn't it? I think it's come across loud and clear in this podcast. What the industry needs is certainty so it can plan. And the, the wedding industry certainly is an industry that is experts in planning. I have no doubt that the capability and the skill sets are there, provided that the framework is set by government. And I know it's a challenging time, but I'm confident as well, those businesses that will weather the storm will come out of this uh, stronger. Well, Charles and Emily, thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting through uh, the, the weddings industry with you over the past half an hour or so and um, all the very best for the future of the business uh, Emily and thank you Charles for all the work you're doing in representing the industry and thank you once again to both of you for joining the podcast. Brilliant thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much Alex. If you're not a member of the CLA you can join today. More information can be found on our website www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Hold up. 
Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.